Hi, I'm your host, Aaron, and welcome to the First Generations Podcast, the show where we dive into the personal experience and knowledge of individuals that paved their path to success on their own terms. From entrepreneurs, professionals, and beyond, we will learn what it takes to walk through their journey and what it means to be first generation. Welcome to the First Generations Podcast. Today's guest is a recovered angry person. Satirical political commentator Swami Yondanda says our guest will help you turn your emotions from tormentor to your mentor. She began her international speaking career at age nine, creating and illustrating stories for classmates every day during fourth grade lunchtime. Now at the age of 77, she lives and travels full time in her RV, speaking, writing, and sharing her wisdom from life and her 50 years helping thousands of individuals and families as a privately practicing psychotherapist and marriage counselor. She's the author of Emotions in Motion, leading readers to develop emotional and anger mastery, restoring emotions to their rightful role as guides designed to help us navigate our lives. I'm proud to present you today's guest, Eileen Dillon. Hi, Eileen. How are you doing? Hi, Aaron. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the introduction, too. These are these are your milestones and accomplishments, right? <laughs> a few and, of them. Yeah, a few of them, right? There's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, so how are you doing during the times of the current pandemic? Well, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but for me, it's been a lot like being on a vacation. Oh. I was heading toward Canada to visit friends in March when things started getting bad. And my son, who lives in Northern California, I was on the West Coast, he said, please come back. And I said, oh, I'll camp. Uh, I have uh, solar on my RV. I'll camp in some national campgrounds. Well, guess what? They started closing the uh, national campgrounds and the national forests and every place that I could camp, they started closing it down. So I came to my son's and he lured me with the invitation to create the family vegetable garden. So I've been doing that. We have fresh vegetables and he lives in a very nice home. I get to go swimming. I'm on the edge of open space. We have fresh fruit, fresh vegetables right out of the yard. And I get to do the work that I love. So for me, it's been fantastic. And I feel very bad for people who do not have that situation. But let me just say that I also, from having had a lot of difficulties in my life, I also believe that it's because I have done a lot of my shadow side work that I've been able to float up and have a better experience than I would have, say, 35 or 40 years ago. Ah, I see. That's really cool. So just to summarize, then, it seems like obviously your travels have been limited due to this COVID-19. They, they are, yeah. Yeah. So your mission is to exponentially increase the love in individuals, families, communities, and the world. How did you come to assign yourself this mission? Was there a specific moment in time that made you confirm that this is your life's mission? Well, yes and no. I believe that the earth is a big giant school and we all come here in order to learn and grow and we get our homework assignments in our childhood. I had a very difficult childhood. I was essentially not cared for in the first two years of my life. Then I was removed from my birth mother when my father came back from World War II. And I went to boarding schools at age three and four. My father was in the military. I endured all levels of abuse. Those are what I consider my homework assignment. And with all of that, obviously many of those things would make anybody angry. 
but I couldn't express that anger, so I held it inside. Then when I grew up and fell into the job of being a therapist and a marriage counselor, I found that what I wanted to do, and a lot of people are like this when you have a tough experience, I wanted to give other people what I didn't have. And it wasn't until I was 37 years old and had worked many years as a therapist that I realized the one person that I had not been giving love to was myself. And so I chose to teach myself to love myself. And that's made a huge change. And it also brought me to the awareness that love for any of us is the key thing. I was teaching conscious parenting at the time. And I believe that all children are born being loving to themselves and we train them out of it. So I think very important in parenting also is to help children stay in contact with the love they have for themselves because what you have inside of you is what gets attracted from outside of you. So, you know, it's a key. Now, what is your story? Like what drew you to being a therapist and counselor? I couldn't figure out what to do with my life (laughs) is the bottom line. I had five different majors in college. I I didn't want to do English, didn't want to do sociology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And my first husband went to graduate school to be a therapist and he didn't type and I did. And I typed all of his papers. So when I graduated from college, I thought, well, the only thing that has any interest to me at all is social work. So I took a year off. I worked in the war on poverty that we had then, and I decided I liked it well enough to go into therapy. But still, I was not sure I was in the right place. And curiously, after my first husband left and I was all alone and I felt lonely, I met a man in an Aikido class I was taking, and he suggested that I see this woman who read auras. And I went to see her, and as she was talking to me, she was in her 80s, she started shaking her finger in my face, and she said, you know, you should be a psychotherapist. You came to this world to be a psychotherapist. And I'm sitting there going, but, but, but. And finally, I said, but I am a psychotherapist. And she said, good, you're one of the few people on the face of the earth who's figured out what you're supposed to be doing. Well, I was about 33 years old by that point, and I went home going, oh my gosh, I finally figured it out. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) So so that's how I actually got into it. It was kind of a strange thing. And then I've done a whole lot of other things since then also. But usually the therapists, by the way, have had difficulties in their lives and they want to make life better for others. And the trick, of course, is that we're the ones who really need the healing. And if you're my client, Erin, you're fortunate if you get some help from me, but the person who really needs to get healed is me. But what I learned over the 50 years I've been doing therapy is that when I do heal me, I can be extremely helpful in helping other people. And so I'm very grateful that I finally figured all that out. Can you tell us about like, let's say your transition to a therapist then? Like, was was there a lot of support against it or for it? Especially coming, let's say from your fam, like your family or your husband, because I feel that let's say if we're talking about transitioning into like a career, especially when you're in your late 30s, like, you know, the social stigma is that by the age of 20, you should already know what you're going to be doing. You're going to start striving for that goal, right? So how was that transition for you? 
I feel really sad that people today are pressured like that. I don't know how the heck anybody can find out for sure unless they know. My husband, Bob, was a neurosurgeon and he knew at the age of six that he wanted to be a surgeon, all right? But unless you do something like that, you need time to figure out how you fit with the world. Well, first of all, I was nowhere near my family. My husband and I had moved all the way across the country. I was halfway across the United States from my family. My husband and I had married at age 19. We had a child when I was 28, and I had one more year of my master's degree to go. And then we agreed to have this child, but then he decided when she was 10 months old that it was time for him to leave. He he didn't want to be a father. Talk about making up your mind about things, you know. And so I suddenly became a single parent. And I was a single parent for 20 years. We had helped each other through college, so he did help me to finish my master's degree. I told him it would be in his best interest if I had a degree and could support myself, and he saw the wisdom in that. And, you know, I've done a lot of things over the years. I've been a radio podcast host for 13 years. I've taught uh, continuing educations for California probation officers and my local community. I've spoken at conferences. I've been a teacher. I now am writing books. I just am finishing my second one on ending manipulation. And, you know, you and I were considering the issue of these as different careers. But as I thought about it, they were not different careers to me. They were extensions of the same thing I was doing. And I extended into them either because of interest or because I needed to develop my therapy practice and I needed to network, or because I needed to make more money to support my children. So I was a professional speaker. I mean, I was a member of the National Speakers Association for close to 25 years. I'm no longer a member right now, but I still am an international professional speaker as well. And The reason I taught probation officers was I decided they would be a great training ground for becoming a speaker because I would have to really hone my speaking skills to do that job well. They were required to take the class. They already knew some of the material. They were given time off from their work, which they loved, but while they were in my class, their work was piling up and they wanted to be entertained. And that is a very challenging audience to work with. And I did it for seven and a half years. And I appreciate every probation officer that's ever been in my class for helping me to hone my speaking abilities. Ah, I find that very interesting, too. Let's say dialing back to what you've just mentioned a little bit earlier. It seems to me that the term career, at least in our society today, A lot of us are taught to go search for it, to grab it as if the career is outside ourselves. It's like our end goal and we're like the starting point. But from based on what you're saying, we ourselves are actually what we should be striving for. And it's almost as if like the career is almost metaphorical and it's actually within us. And that's a very brilliant question. I thank you for that. You see, if you look at it, you're looking at a worldview. Is my worldview that I need to be successful and make money? Is my worldview that I need to be a soul here and develop myself? And that's the dichotomy that goes on. And transparency here, Mm -hmm. in the years that I learned to be a therapist, nobody taught us about business. So I didn't do hugely well financially when I did all those things. 
but I did them and they filled my heart up. I enjoyed them. And I think there's a lot of pressure on people right now to get a career, do it well, go into depth, make a lot of money, be hugely successful. And it's a lot of pressure. I'm actually grateful. I, this is not my time to be developing myself because that's a huge amount of pressure. And the other thing is that especially as I've worked with emotions and these thousands of people I've worked with over the 50 years, the one thing that I'm totally convinced of is that life is lived from the inside out. Whatever is going on in me inside is what I'm going to be pulling in from outside. So if I'm go, 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 that's what I'm going to be getting from the outside. If I'm, you know, does this make me feel good? Do I love it? Is it what fills my heart? Then that's what I'm going to be getting from the outside. And, you know, now that I'm 77 and traveling all over in my RV, for the last three years, I've had the opportunity to live just from my heart. People say, well, what's your plan? Where are you going next? I go, I don't know. Wherever my heart tells me to go, right? Whatever my heart tells me to do. And I think that these times are giving us an opportunity to make a choice. I always taught my children that we are souls in a human body and we need to nurture both the human and the soul. And the emphasis on the material kind of cuts the soul out a little bit. And I think it leaves us feeling empty, more empty than we need to be. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't You know, I can't tell you the number of people I've worked with who were hugely successful, went to top law schools, got top jobs, and six months, a year after they finally got the job they've been striving for for so many years, came into my office going, I hate it. I can't stand it. I did this for other people. I didn't do it for myself. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, 100%. (laughs) And so I don't think that's a good way, ideally it would be a combination of those two sides. But sometimes we have to explore one side first and then the other side and then put them together. Yeah, now I have another question specifically when you mentioned listen to your heart. For example, I myself am guilty of this too. Like I followed the social scripts. Now that saying listen to your heart is like continuously being thrown around a lot. What, like, what does it mean? Like, really, like, honestly, what does it mean? <laughs> like, how do you listen to your heart? It, it's like, is there like a certain indicator that you're looking for? Or how do you know it's your heart saying things and it's not your mind colluding against your heart? Well, one of the things that I really have learned to love, Aaron, is what I call experiments. Instead of having to change my life and suddenly listen to my heart, how about I just experiment with it for three weeks? and see what happens, right? So if I decide to experiment to listening to my heart, then what I'll do is every hour, hour and a half, I might even set a timer, I'll stop and say, okay, what is my heart saying to me? Another way of saying it is what am I feeling right now? What do I want right now? You know, I worked with a woman and she was like in her mid-20s who came to me because she was being aggressive with her roommates and she was depressed and she was on medication. You know what the real core issue was, is that she had no idea what she wanted. She was trying to please other people. So she and I just focused on what do you want to do here? She would stay up at night until her roommates went to bed because she thought that was the polite thing to do. Even if they were staying up till two or three in the morning and she had to get up and go to work the next day. So partly it's just like, 
stop and say, what would I, what do I really want to do right now? Yeah. Now you don't have to do it, but if you can, you can do it or you can do part of it and you just experiment. And what begins to happen is in your experiment, you'll find certain things where you feel better because you did it. And then you start looking at them. What was it? How did I feel? What was going on with me? So it's a little bit of an experimentation. I've been doing it so many years right now. It's like a thought will come up in me. I don't know what might happen, but I threw this, my iPhone on the bed before I started talking to you. I'm in the bedroom of my son's home. I threw it on the bed and something inside of me said, something might go wrong on this broadcast and Aaron may need to send me a message. So I put it here instead. I've learned to listen to those things. Now I may not need to use it, but I'm glad I have it there in case something does happen, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you just start to listen. The principle, Aaron, is that what you focus on, you tend to become. So if you focus on asking your heart or asking your want what it is, then you do that every day for three weeks, you'll begin to hear responses back. And it's okay if you get neutral back too. Don't expect something right away. But we know ourselves, but we have been trained not to listen to ourselves. Like you're talking about, you've learned to pay attention to what your society or what the social norms are saying you need to do, what you should do, which is stuff coming from outside of you, not from inside. And at the very least, we need a balance between what I should do and what I want to do. Very frankly, I don't do shoulds anymore. I also don't do guilt and worry and fear and hurt and anger. You know, I don't do it anymore. <laughs> Wasting my time. I love that insight. And from what it sounds like, it's a lot of trial and error. And, and like you said, they're experiments. <laughs> well, you can kind of play around with it. You know, it's not a, yeah. it's not a big, heavy thing. And everybody can do it. Kids do it easily. It's, it's not a big thing. But we've learned not to listen. Mm -hmm. You know, think of the times you've seen an adult tell a child, say thank you, or uh, tell, the, tell this other child you're sorry. Well, what is happening right there is the adult is teaching the child to lie about how they really feel. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so we lose track of how we really feel. And we have emotions 24-7, 365 days a year from our birth to our death, Emotions are really important, and we've lost track of them. And take a look at the news. They are totally out of control because yes. emotions, when you hold them down, which you do when you're not letting them move through, when you hold them down, they grow. And mm -hmm. then they have to move, so at some point they explode. Yeah. This kind of brings on my next question that I have for you. I was going to ask you, why is it so difficult for one to control their own emotions? <laughs> because emotions are, are not made to be controlled. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, we're trying to do something that is... Okay, so emotions are energy, right? Okay. Water is energy. Electricity is energy. Wind is energy. Emotions follow the same principles that other energy follow. You can't create it. You can't destroy it. You can't control it. You can channel it. 
you can use it for work, but it's its own essence, right? Yes. Okay. So what we have learned to do, the problem for us is that people get hurt by what they don't know about. And what we don't know about is emotions, which is my big push now to mm -hmm. spend the rest of my life helping people understand emotions. Well, emotions are just energy. They are meant to come up with our experiences to give us a message. We utilize the message. We learn from the experience we had, and then we let them go. That's a simple outline of what we're supposed to do. But, oh, no, we humans hold on to them. We go, oh, well, I'm not going to forgive that person. Well, I'm not going to let that person off the hook. I'll never forget what you did. Or I'm not going to let that person know I'm angry, et cetera, et cetera. We do all these things and we put the emotions under pressure, especially anger. Anger is our most active emotion. Anger is the least possible to keep under control. So let's use anger, though, to show what happens when you try to control. Suppose... I feel angry toward you, Aaron, and I tell myself, I'm not going to let Aaron see that I'm angry. I'm not going to tell him. I'm just going to sit on it. I sit on it, and maybe I do that four or five, ten times in knowing you, yeah. and that anger is inside of me, and it's building all the time that it's in me. Plus, it's active, so it's looking for a way out. Mm -hmm. And finally, one day, you do something, and what do I do? you do something that crosses a line for me, I explode, right? I explode and I get angry. And I say, you're making me angry. You're not making me angry. I'm the one who's making me angry. But because I have an idea of how you're supposed to be and you've crossed it. So I say, you're making me angry and I dump on you and then I feel bad. And so the next time I see you, I swear to myself, I'm not going to tell Aaron how angry with him I am because... I just, I feel so bad about that. And I start building the anger again. So we go over and over this all the time, which is why it seems like anger is so powerful. I mean, think about water that you've got behind a dam and yes. a little hole gets in the dam. That water will work its way through that little hole until it wipes the entire dam and everything downriver from it out. That's the same thing that anger held on to can do and does. So let, let's use anger as an example too. Then going back to your uh, reference there, let's just say I've started developing some anger. At that very moment when I'm angry, what I try to do is, like you said, I try to sustain it for like the whole day. And then until I get back home, I'll go into my routine of meditation and try to let it out. Now, in, should I be actually acknowledging my emotions at that time if I'm feeling it? or like? Well, this is a very interesting question. All right. If you've been holding on to anger for years, as I did as a child, it took me two years to get all the stored anger out of me, right? So yeah. if you've been storing it for a long time and you decide you're going to stop and acknowledge it when you're at Aikido or something, it's, yeah. it's not going to work very well. If you haven't been storing it, if you're learning to release it, I still recommend that you go away from other people to release it mm -hmm. and you let it out. But ultimately, what you want to do is change the reason that you get angry in the first place, right? So what I've identified as the universal cause of anger 
is that I have pictures and ideas inside of me about how things are supposed to be in the world. You should be polite to me when you talk to me. If you're not polite, I'll get angry with you. You should be straightforward with me. And if you're circuitous, you should not be circuitous. I have yeah. a should. I'll get angry with you. Do you see? That's why I said that you can't make me mad. It's me and my ideas and pictures that's getting violated. And the whole purpose of anger coming up in terms of us being learning is to show us where we have these pictures because where we hold these pictures, we're rigid and mm -hmm. we don't function very well in the world as a result of that, right? So ultimately what I want to do, and I use this little example a lot. Suppose I'm driving down the freeway and some driver cuts in front of me and I get angry. And every time some driver gets in front of me, I get angry. Well, getting angry is stressful to my body. It compromises my ability to drive well, all kinds of things. And, uh, and why do I get angry? Because I think no driver should cut in front of me. Well, how realistic is that? You've driven on the freeway. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually not realistic at all. And in fact, not at can't, all. you can't control it. Like you can't. There's... Can't control it. So approximately how many people do you, drivers do you think would cut in front of you on the freeway? What percentage? Probably 90%, probably even 100%, right? So people know <laughs> where they're going, you know, right? <laughs> okay. So what happens next time you're on the freeway and the driver cuts in front of you and you go, ah, there you are. You're part of the 90%. I feel that it's almost like you also construct these buffers in your minds, like in a sense where, oh, okay, like maybe for me habitually, I'll just go slower, no, like trying to think ahead what, what this person's trying to do because he's speeding up beside me, right? So it's like you create these little buffers just to help, you know. Right, um, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But it depends on how much you want anger to run your life. And I've worked a lot because anger ran my life for many years. And I decided it's tiring, it's taxing, it's embarrassing, it's overwhelming to other people. It blocks you from being successful in life. It destroys your self-esteem. Uh, anger is just, you know, when we sit on it, anger as anger is just the same as every other emotion. It's neither positive nor negative. It's just anger, right? But yes. when we sit on it is when it turns to negative for us. And so that was a big motivator for me that I didn't want to keep running my life on the basis of this intense, hot anger running through me all the time. That's why I went on the search to find what causes anger. Where does it come from? Is there anything we can do about it? You know, what's the best way to release it? And when I went searching in the early 1970s, I went to university libraries. I couldn't find any answers. So yeah. I started looking for them. There are not very many answers even today because we don't have an agreed upon system, which is what I'm trying to share with the world. The system is we're in a big giant school, all of us. We all came here to learn and grow. So how do we learn and grow? We have experiences. Yes. And what we do with those experiences help us to learn or not learn. Every time we have an experience, it can be a positive experience, a mild, a strong, a negative experience, whatever. But with experience comes emotion. Yes. Suppose you are rude to me, up comes anger. All right, that's the emotion. 
the anger is telling me something. Every emotion, and I've got 12 of these listed in my book, Emotions in Motion, every emotion has a message for us. Love says, come closer. Loneliness says, you've got more of your energy going out than coming in. You need to bring some energy into yourself. Anger yeah. says, you've got an idea of how the world is supposed to work, and it's not working that way, so your idea has to be wrong. Yeah. So you need to change it. When we know that we're in school, what we usually do is we go, oh, okay, so I had this experience. Maybe I should learn something. I don't have time right now, or it's too scary, or whatever, and we don't learn the lesson. Yes. But when you realize that you're in school, you say, oh, there's an opportunity to learn. Let me see if I can take it. All right. So then I use the emotion to help me look at the experience. Okay, so I'm lonely. I need to bring in more energy. And I make that correction and learn the lesson. Now, here's the interesting way the school is set up. When I don't learn the lesson, it appears sometimes to disappear but it doesn't really. It just kind of goes around and comes back again. This time yes. it comes in from, and hits us on the back of the head. And every time it goes around, it's a harsher, harder lesson, right? Yes. So we keep doing the same kinds of things and we say to ourselves, why do I keep having this experience? You know, It's because we're not learning the lesson. And whatever sets it up, I call it the universe, whatever sets it up, once the lesson has been presented to you, it doesn't stop presenting it to you. It goes, okay, well, you don't want to learn it this time. We'll just give it to you again mm -hmm. and again and again. Well, people don't like to change. So they wait until the pain of where they are is so great, they think it couldn't be worse if they change, and then they try to change. But by yeah. then, they're picking themselves up off the floor because this has happened so much, right? So that's what happens when you don't learn the lesson. The good news is when you do learn the lesson, when you turn around and embrace and say, okay, I'm ready to learn this lesson. Show me what I need to learn. You need to ask for help if you want help. Guess what? It's over like that as soon as you learn it and you don't repeat it anymore. Uh -huh. To me, that is a huge incentive for learning the lessons that come up in my life. And what I've also found since I've been doing this for about 40 years now is that the more I embrace the lessons and learn them, the faster they move through me, the less painful they are, the easier my life gets, the happier it gets. I just love that whole system that you have. Thank like, you. And again, this all alludes to what's from the inside reflects what comes to you on the outside. And there's always that famous saying to how life is full of experiences. And if it happens to you again, because like you said, you're not learning. You're, you're going through the same thing and life is always throwing these lessons at you, right? Well, but it's nice if somebody tells you that, but isn't it nice also to know what you have to do in order to learn the lessons? It is. Like you said, like with a lot of us and I myself included, a lot of these times, these lessons, they hit me hard and I didn't want to acknowledge it or face it or at least come to realize it, right? I thought, huh, maybe if I ignore it, it'll go away. Yeah, well, and... you're very human, Aaron. <laughs> yes, right? So it's very interesting. <laughs> well, you see, that's why I haven't stopped working at age 77 because it's so exciting to me. I mean, I didn't learn how to deal with fear until I was 50. All right, so my life was screwed up for a number of years and I was working hard to learn and all of a sudden it comes together and you see, oh my goodness, there's a system here and it works. 
you know, like I go out in my RV, I travel alone. I have a little eight pound dog who goes with me. I've been in 30 states and four Canadian provinces in the last three years. Yeah. And people say, oh, that must take so much courage. And I say, no, it doesn't take any courage at all. Courage is about feeling the fear and doing it anyway. What happens? What do you call it when you don't feel the fear? Right? I... <laughs> so it doesn't take courage and just not afraid. Now, you can't get rid of emotions, but the way that I've learned to work with emotions is instead of them being this big or this big over my whole life, they're about this big, and they take about, oh, probably the most they take me anymore is an hour or two to pass through me. That's the most. Usually, it's much faster than that. Yeah, so when, when Eileen's referring to being this big, it's actually very tiny. Like, she does not or give the amount of room or space. Can I tell you a story about that that illustrates it? Yes, let's do that. <laughs> Years ago, I have a daughter who's turning 33 this month. She was in her teens, and she and I were in downtown Berkeley, California. We did a little shopping. I was going to my office. She was going to spend the weekend with a friend of hers. And when I got finished work at my office, I looked in my backpack and my wallet was missing. I called the store that we'd been in. I knew I had used my wallet that morning and they didn't have it. And so I surmised that somebody stole my wallet out of my backpack. And so I decided I had recently learned about being able to manifest things, to call lost things back to you by both affirming it's my wallet and it's coming back to me and remembering what it felt like to have it in my hand and to take things and what was in it and that sort of thing. So I did that for a couple of days. I reported it and so forth. Well, my daughter comes back home and she is looking at me strangely for a while. And she says, is your wallet still missing? And I said, yes. She said, well, why are you so calm? Why aren't you upset? And I said, go down and look at the license plate on my car. It said E-M-O-T-B-A-L for emotional balance. Okay. So that's what I strive for. And then she said, but most people would be crying or they'd be angry. Why are you not? And I said to her, listen, somebody has already taken my wallet. That is an insult to me, personal insult. And if I get angry or react emotionally any more than I have, I'm giving them even more of me than they've already taken. And that to me means they're going to be getting me twice. So I refuse, I don't wanna give it to them. So I kept it up. Now the wallet was taken on Saturday and by Thursday evening, it was back in my hands. It turns out that the people who took it dropped it in on the side of the road 30 miles away it had a business card of mine in it. A man who worked on the roads picked it up. There wasn't a scratch on it. And he lived a mile away from me and brought it to my home personally and wouldn't accept any kind of reward. Wow. Oh, just so deep and so powerful. <laughs> I love that story. Welcome to my world, Aaron. Yeah. Deep and, and powerful. And when you told, when you were mentioning how like I didn't finish my question, you kind of answered it because I was going to ask you, how is it that emotions have the capability to overpower one's mind, leading to unfavorable decisions and outcomes? But at the end of the day, emotions are not meant to be controlled. And, the, I, and I think it's because that because we're trying to control it, 
especially with our mind, that it's two opposing forces. Like it's like an unbreakable wall within like an unstoppable force trying to go at each other to the point where it causes these irrational or unfavorable decisions. Yes. And I had a really great everyday example of that. My husband, Bob, as I mentioned, was a neurosurgeon. He was a brilliant man and his mind really worked well. My brain could not hold a candle to his. So how did I keep myself from being overwhelmed? I really focused on what I wanted, what my emotions were, how I was working with my emotions. And it turned out that the power of his mind was equaled by the power of my being with my emotions. Ah. It is so powerful. And we undermine it largely because we haven't known about it. Most of us have been ignorant, myself included, about the system and people don't really know what to do. Oh, count to 10, you'll feel better. Uh, yeah. Momentarily, you'll feel better, but you won't resolve anything. And a lot of what I've learned, Aaron, is because I'm a very impatient person. I can't stand going over and over the same stuff all the time. I want to get finished <laughs> with it, move on. <laughs> now, I am someone that was raised under the household that showing emotion is a sign of weakness. I'm not sure I can, if I can pinpoint this necessarily to a lot of immigrant families because I feel like that's not the case, right? It could be maybe the old school mentality just in general, right? And that's it's called a repressive family. Yeah. It's a, yeah, right? So this led me to keeping and bottling a lot of emotions inside until it was later in my growth where I found out this was definitely unhealthy. You have to let it out. For someone that grew up repressing their emotions, are there any helpful ways or some simple steps, like just some simple actions that they could start to help acknowledging and being self-aware to let out these emotions? You know, I, I once had a man who wrote a book called I Can Make You Sleep on my program. Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he said that in the, in the bedroom, there are only three things you should ever do. Sleep, make love, and read my book. I thought that was really funny, and that's my first answer. Read my book, Emotions in Motion, number okay. one. But really, like we've, we've covered some of this. What you focus on, you tend to become. And what we've learned to do is not focus on emotions unless they drive us crazy, and then we have to, then we get depressed, and we do nothing but focus on them. But focus on them and see what message they have. And there's a whole list in my book, which is why I'd like you to start with it. It's on Amazon. And then just begin to listen to yourself and utilize, just do the experimentation. At first, you may think you're paying too much attention to emotions, but if you do go ahead and pay attention on a regular basis for about three weeks, it usually unlocks the, the treasure chest and you can do a lot more. So I would recommend that. And, you know, there are different kinds of families and the repressive family says we are all the same and we don't air our dirty linen in public and all of that. And about 50% of all families are repressive. Yes. So many of us have learned to hold, my, my family was repressive too, we learned to hold emotions down. And it may, for a time, create a neat little society but if you look at the streets of the United States right now, where everything is, people are exploding, it doesn't work over time. You hold it in long enough, something happens, and then you can't hold it back anymore, right? Yeah. And it can become very destructive. So what we really want to do is open it up and start letting them flow. 
And so another important thing is for us to start valuing emotions. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why in the world would whatever created us give us these things called emotions that are with us our entire lives, every single minute, even when we're demented, we still have our emotions. Why did that happen? Because they're tools. It's like your mother sends you off to school and she gives you a backpack with a lunch and a pencil and a ruler, right? Well, whatever sent us off with a little backpack that has emotions in it. And we don't even open the backpack. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's so true. So tell me about your book, Emotions in Motion. Like, where did the inspiration come from writing this? Like, why a book? Well, you know, when I was 16, my older sister asked me, what do you think you're going to do in your life? And I said, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to write. And she said, what are you going to write about? And I said, well, life, I think, but I have to live some of it first. And so that was my inspiration, something deep inside of me back when I was 16. And in the meantime, I've been collecting all this incredible information. I mean, if it can turn my life around, it can turn anybody's life around. So many people oh, yeah. are going for trauma therapy. Well, I had trauma upon trauma upon trauma, and I'm not living as a trauma survivor anymore. And this is a lot we can do for ourselves, which I like. I'm an independent cuss. And so my inspiration came from, at last, I no longer have my brick and mortar office. My husband died in 2016. I sold our home, bought an RV. Now I don't have to look after a big house and a garden and yard and trees and all that. And I only have one animal, not five. And, <laughs> and, and so my inspiration was at last I can write this. And I actually, that, that book, the first draft I wrote, 175 pages in one week. I was in my RV. It was winter time. It was pouring rain outside. There was nothing else to do. So I sat and wrote and it just fell out of me. Nice. I also type really fast. I type 120 words a minute. So, Wow. Yeah. I was a secretary. You no, didn't have that on your list, did you? That I was a secretary. I no, was a I secretary for the Far Eastern, the China project and the Far Eastern department at the University of Washington for three years. Ah, now I'm just curious, what is this China project? It's an academic group. It was the University of Washington. Okay. And they had a Far Eastern department. And George Taylor and Franz Michael were the heads of it. And they, and that, at that time, that was in the late 60s, they decided to make their Far Eastern department the primo place for anybody who knew anything about the history and culture of the Far East. They had a book that they wrote, The Far East in the Modern World. So they had a Tibetan project. They had a Korean project. They had a China project. They had a Japanese uh. project. And they had scholars and linguists. And Franz Michael was the head of the China project, and I was his secretary. You know, the one thing that we discussed a lot, like we consult the I Ching, uh, that was translated by a man named Wilhelm. Well, Wilhelm's son was one of the faculty members in the China Project. So I got uh -oh. to meet some incredible people. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. While get... living on a houseboat. <laughs> <laughs> While living on a houseboat. Even cooler. <laughs> 
Is there one book you would recommend to our listeners that was most impactful to you in your development in becoming who you are today? Right. You know, I had to laugh when I, when I thought about that question because 13 years of doing a podcast, I invited authors and I read a book every week for 13 years. That's a lot of books. Yes. So I could recommend a whole lot of those. However, for my personal development, I tend to be very spiritual, not religious, but spiritual. Okay. And what opened me up to all of that were the channelings of uh, Jane Roberts, of Seth. The, okay. uh, the Seth material, and especially the nature of personal reality, was fantastic for me, and I've gone back to it over the years. It, it was really wonderful. Now, Esther Hicks and Abraham are doing similar things, but in my development, it was Seth. So the book title is called Seth by Jane Roberts, right? No, there are nope. several books. The one that I liked the best was called The Nature of Personal Nature. Reality. Oh, okay, okay. But there's also one called Seth Speaks. There are probably 30 books that are very prolific. And they were all channeled. Her husband, she would go into a trance center with a beer. She always had a beer. He always yeah. wrote. And her husband hand wrote what she was saying. Oh, wow. It was an incredible task, yes. Thank you for that share. Now, what does being first generation mean to you? That's a really great question, too. I, I'm chuckling because I, years ago, learned to divide people into pioneers and settlers. Okay. And both groups are very important. The pioneers, of course, go in and do new things and explore and the settlers come behind and they make up rules and they establish culture and they make things comfortable and clearly I am a pioneer so you know what what is my definition my definition has to do with following your heart looking for what makes you feel good because that's usually what you came here to do mm-hmm. and to trust your heart The other thing that I'm especially learning to do now is to go ahead and go flat out. I mean, I started driving in my RV when I was 73, you know, that's pretty flat out. A lot of people are going into nursing homes at 73. As I sometimes say, when when people in my family were my age, they were dead. (laughs) (laughs) See, when you follow your heart and you have things you want to offer and you're serving others, then you move forward. So my husband left me. I sat back and said, okay, I've got a kid to raise by myself. What's important in raising kids? What did I do? I developed a system I called conscious parenting that I've taught all over the world. I was left with a huge amount of anger. I couldn't, I paved the way by saying, okay, what can I learn about anger? And now I've developed a system of uh, emotions. My next book that I just finished the first draft of is called Ending Manipulation. Yes. I noticed that I was feeling very manipulated and wondered, when does it begin? How do we do it? Can we stop it? You know? Yeah. What does it cost us? So that's what's in this new book that I hope to get out this year. And so to me, first generation is like, take what comes up and say yes and then explore it and Mm -hmm. put your heart into it and love what you're doing and if you don't uh, when my husband was dying he he, uh, was in the process of being ill and dying for about five years and a 
good friend of mine, something I never would have expected, went through the entire process living in our home with us. We would come up with these chores that we might need to do in caring for my husband that were distasteful. Mm-hmm. And we'd sit there and go, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. And finally, we developed a system. And the system is this. Guess what I get to do today? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you don't like it, turn it around and give yourself the opportunity to get to do it. And so I don't know if that's really a definition, but to me, it's like engage in life. We all came here to explore, to learn to investigate love and not love in our own unique way. And that's what I would call first generation. That's awesome. Just curious about your next book. You said you're hoping to release it sometime at the end of this year. Is there like a timeline? Like do you have a specific month? Like maybe in October, November? Wouldn't it be nice? I didn't even have a publisher yet, but I'm working on it. No, I've written the script. I mean, I've written the manuscript and I have it out to some people now who are reading it and giving me their reaction. This is material that totally changed my life Mm -hmm. because most of us are hooked into manipulation and manipulation is a relationship issue it's not an illness Uh, it's a relationship issue the issue really is that if I allow you to manipulate me I'm not all the way grown up because if I'm all the way grown up I don't have to compromise who I am in order to get along or stay connected to you and vice versa and what we do in usually is we say oh, that person is an energy vampire. How do I handle that person? And once again, life is lived from the inside out. The Mm -hmm. key to changing manipulation is changing your own manipulation. Now, lastly, where can we find you on social media or where can we find you, find more details about you online? Okay. Well, one thing, I have two free gifts that I want to give to people. One is seven skills of love and the other is seven skills of intimacy. And at the last minute, early this morning, I sent that to you and you have it. Okay. (laughs) So if you could put that on there. Definitely. All right. In the meantime, my website is emotionalmasteryforlife.com. And if anybody wants to write me, I'm Eileen at Emotional Mastery for Life. And on Facebook, I'm under Emotional Mastery Expert. On Twitter, I'm Emotion Expert. And on Instagram and LinkedIn, I'm Eileen Dillon uh, without a space, just like it is up there. And for our listeners, I'll include the links in the description of the podcast episode below. Okay, thank you very much, Eileen. I appreciate your new presence and the knowledge and the wisdom you provided me and our listeners today. <laughs> well, it's been fun. Thank you. I so love sharing this. I really want to create a one-person revolution or a, a millions-of-person revolution. We can live happy lives no matter what's happened to us. And that's what I want people to know and to have the skills for. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to get my message out, Aaron. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on Instagram and subscribe to us on YouTube at First Generation Podcast. For any questions, comments, and inquiries, please reach out to Aaron at firstgenerationspodcast.com. That is A-A-R-O-N at firstgenerationspodcast.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.